I have asked staff to design and develop as though you care, as though your family's going to live in this place. Welcome to Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. Water is an issue in 2021. I think that it's very important to address how all of our water systems work together so that we can proactively plan for the water-constrained future that we have already entered. Hello, and welcome to Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, and health about how they are tackling the big challenges we face in these three areas. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, and I am joined today by Laura Aldrete, the Director of Community Planning and Development for the City and County of Denver, and Grace Rink, the Director of the Denver Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resilience. I'm excited to dive into a conversation with both of them about their work and their professional journeys. A brief bio for Laura. Before taking the helm at Community Planning and Development, Laura was Senior VP at Denver International Airport, where she was responsible for implementing a development plan for large swaths of land. Prior to that, Laura has had roles at various design firms and within government offices, and Laura was born and raised here in Denver. Grace relatively recently moved to Denver uh, in March of 2020 from Chicago, where she was president and CEO of Porcus Consulting, a firm providing various sustainability consulting services. Grace also was a senior project manager at AECOM, and prior to that, the assistant commissioner for the Chicago Department of the Environment. Welcome, Laura and Grace. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you both. I, we're going to go ahead and start with you, Laura, and uh, ask you a little bit about your your work and, and what the Department of Community Planning and Development does. So can you give us a sense of what the role of your office is? So we have a broad breadth of what we do, really starting with neighborhood communities, helping them to envision their future uh, and creating plans out of that, uh, that that will help guide development for their neighborhoods whether it's development or whether it's preservation or some combination of both. Uh, we certainly touch on food um, and water and healthy cities and communities as a part of that. We can talk about that a little bit later. And then as we move through this, uh, the system, the city system uh, of, of planning and development, we also work with the development communities in as they are coming in with uh, development projects whether it's residential, single-family residential, multifamily residential, office, commercial, industrial, there are a variety of rules and regulations and zoning law that they have to go through and to be approved. And so we take work with them through that process and ultimately realize their design and then ultimately to get it permitted for construction. It sounds like it is a little bit of a variety of different things. You have a, a very diverse set of tasks that are put in front of you and your team as an office? Yeah, so it is, um, it's really all of Denver, right? It's, Denver has always, I would say since the 1850s, has grown uh, and we will continue to grow. So I don't think of it as a question of whether or not do we grow, but how do we grow? And so in order to ask that question and have that dialogue with the community, uh, you have, you've got to, um, really reach out to, you know, that broad breadth of community members. We work with, you know, there's a number of universities here in the city. And of course, um, we work with them in uh, defining those, um, what's ultimately a building or what their vision is. 
Can you say a little bit about, I mean, you work at a lot of different scales too. So maybe you can describe a little bit the, the sort of larger scale, comprehensive plan scale work that you do um, as well. Because you're mentioning a lot of um, interaction with neighborhoods at neighborhood scale, but what's the bigger picture? I always like to say we are city builders um, and cities are messy. So, and it's the larger scale, the larger you go, the sometimes the messier they become. Um, and they are, there are hard uh, questions and conversations that have to be had about who is benefiting, what is the purpose of this, of, you know, of this larger scale development, um, whether you're talking about Central Park, um, which I was a part of early on, whether you're, um, you know, uh, National Western, where the CSU spur is, right? Those conversations uh, are important, but it's really also about thinking about transformational projects in a city. You have to be able to move into those spaces of transformational projects that are going to, you know, create vision and excitement uh, for a city, for the residents, also for attracting people into the city. It has to also serve, you know, the economics of the city, the region, competing on a national level, um, and balancing that though back with the community and what are you know how, how are we making sure that all boats rise through those transformational projects? Yep, it's no mean feat to be balancing all of the scales and all of the different interests um, to try, to try to achieve a vision for the city. Sure. sure, I mean, look, it's not one department, right? It's not my department. It is in part, you know, Grace sure. pushing on us and encouraging us to to do better in the, in the world of sustainability. It's, you know, mobility advocates, help, you know, pushing us to think about better um, bike networks. Um, it's the community saying we need better schools or we want this for, you know, we want a grocery store, having those conversations and working to figure out how that happens. So it's, it's a broad breadth. I mean, it takes all of us literally to bring about those transformational projects. Um, what I hope to do, you know, what I hope, this department delivers to the citizens is to think about, you know, when they close their eyes and they think about what um, what they want their city to be or what they're most proud of about our city, that they think about, you know, either the river and that trail system, or they think about Denver Union uh, Station, or they think about National Western, or they think about the Greek Town Green and Stapleton in uh, Central Park, right? That is what helps us connect place with our emotion. And those are those beautiful places. And I think that's what city is all about. Yeah, that's great. Um, and thank you for reflecting on that and sort of what the why is a little around, around what you are doing. Um, Grace, let's turn to you and talk a little bit about uh, your why and uh, what the Office of Climate Action, Sustainability and Resiliency does. Our office actually is the newest office of the city. We became an official office in July of 2020. And I like to say that uh, collaboration is in our DNA because this office really evolved out of a negotiation between um, environmental advocates, uh, you know, external to the city, uh, the mayor and city council. And so those groups came together and decided that as much as Denver had already done with creating a climate action plan and really being a leader nationwide in climate planning, it needed to have a single office where all of these policies would be housed. And when I look at um, Laura's department, Community Planning and Development, that is an implementing agency. That department, Parks and Rec, Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, these are the agencies that actually do work on the ground 
our office is really, it is a policy office. And we, um, we do have programs of our own that we run. They're a little bit smaller scale. So a lot of the function that we have is coming to the table with these other implementing agencies, as well as you know, other colleagues in the city as well. And we try to bring everybody to consensus on what the new climate forward policies need to be for the city. And that's hard work. It's coalition building um, within city agencies, as well as uh, working with our external partners as well. Can you say a little bit more about what it looks like to bring people to consensus around some of these policy issues? Are, I'm assuming some are easier than others. I'm assuming that the science is always changing and that's a really dynamic kind of conversation. Can you say a little bit sure, more about absolutely. that? Sure, absolutely. I think that none of it's really easy anymore. I think that Denver's been a leader in this field for enough years now that we've really, um, we've tackled all the low-hanging fruit. And now we're at that place where uh, we're really calling for people and agencies and entities to change what we do and how we do it. We're talking about um, local government as well as, you know, fellow agencies like state agencies as well. We've been around for a long time and um, agencies have gotten to a place where they're comfortable with their systems and their processes and the people and communities who we serve are comfortable with those processes too. But I think all we have to do is look around us to know that we need to change how we're doing things, how we build our buildings, how we lay out our streets, how we develop our communities. And that is not something that's done overnight. And so a lot of the work that we do follows a pattern of creating um, what we would call a task force. So we will bring together uh, in a formal way all of the people or representatives of the different organizations and communities and end users who would be impacted by any new policy or change that we're trying to implement. Implement. We bring them together. We have the really hard conversations over a long period of time. We're talking six months to a year at times. And through that, we come to a consensus around what a new policy or a new program could be that all these impacted groups can really live with. And um, it takes a lot of time. It's so much harder than an agency just saying, and this shall be the new policy. Um, but it's so much more effective than that. Because if we were to just take a magic wand and just say, this is what's going to be now, uh, we would have a lot of angry people at the door and people who would not be ready to adopt the changes that we're asking for. And I have found that this Denver way of doing things is really pretty effective. I like that. The, the, way of, the Denver way of doing things, which in my experience has been a, a much more about collaboration maybe than you might see in, in other places. Is I, that what you mean I by that? I think that's absolutely true. I think that um, Denver is a really unique size for a city. It is big enough to be a big city and have all the great amenities and people that uh, big cities attract, but it also is still small enough that we really know all the people who are leaders in our communities um, as well as other institutions. And so we really can bring those important groups together for deep conversations. Mm -hmm. That's really important. Just to jump in, I, you know, I think about having been born and raised here and practiced most of my career here. I think that there is a very specific culture in Denver and in Colorado about collaboration, because even from our history, right, coming into the plains and not having anyone else around, but your neighbor two miles down the road. And so you had to collaborate to make sure you survive through the winter or the drought or, or whatever it is. Um, and I think that just carries through. And, um, and I think we're a relationship-based business community or government community. And, and um, I think that bodes well for us. Also, 
we don't have a huge number of philanthropy or philanthropists in this community. You look at other cities our size or smaller that have that are older and have really old money. We don't have that. And so we have to put together, everybody has to put their change on the table and compromise um, if we really want, you know, to the point of transformational projects. We all have to figure out how to um, make it work for everyone. And doesn't mean you're going to be 100% um, happy with it, but you know you're, it's all about advancing your city. Right. It's a lot of difficult conversations and a lot of compromise. A question for the both of you, um, and uh, maybe we can start with Grace and then go to Laura, but both of you are relatively new in these roles. Grace, a little bit newer than Laura, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what you what your approach is, what you're bringing to this office, which is also a new form of what was the Office of Sustainability before. Now it has a, a different um, a different form and maybe a bit of a different mission. So tell us more about that. Sure. So, um, yes. Yeah, so for all of our listeners, um, this, as I said earlier, this office is new and I was just hired in March of 2020, even before the office became a real office. And uh, so and I was new to the city. I actually moved here from Chicago for this job. And so it's very exciting to start something relatively from scratch. So there were already staff people in place. Denver already had plenty of plans um, related to climate action. So we had a very, very good foundation, but we definitely were um, in the position of merging at least two different cultures with um, groups from two different offices. And then in February, we acquired a group from the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure that was, these are the folks who managed um, all of the communication and, and engagement around solid waste management. So all the folks who tell you to recycle and how to compost these folks joined our group. So then we had a third culture that we brought into our office. And so we spent a good portion of this year doing um, some organizational management and really thinking about what is our culture. And what we quickly decided on is that we have a culture of innovation. Uh, we are asking local government to do things it's never done before. And we're asking it to do things that it's always done in a different way. And in order to do that, we have to be people who are ready to hear no a lot. And to keep persevering and keep moving forward, um, regardless of that. And so it requires us to be flexible and nimble and creative and innovative and um, eternally optimistic, which frankly, I think that if you work in the climate space, you have to be optimistic uh, because you have to be able, you have to believe that we can actually make a difference, that we can actually um, make change. So um, that's, it's been a, it's been a really good experience. We now are at 25 people. So when I started last year, I was one of 11. And by the end of 2022, we might be at 40 people. So it's a lot of change happening at the same time, um, but it's all good stuff. Uh, we're really happy about it. And I think the people of Denver put their faith in us that we could do this work. And uh, they voted for Ballot Initiative 2A last year, uh, which created the Climate Protection Fund, which provided our office with about $40 million per year. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, the growth, the change. I'm inspired by the notion of um, this culture of innovation and also hearing no a lot and still, you know, being resilient and resiliency is in your name. Yeah, I don't think that we've ever really taken no for an answer. We, we know that eventually we're going to get to yes. It's just a matter of how long, how right. long does it take to get yep. there. And what's the what's the pathway? So what about you, Laura? You've been in your role for about two years. Is that two right? Years, yep. yeah. Can you say a little about um, what it was like to come into that role and, and how you think your leadership has influenced the direction of the office in the last couple of years? Sure. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, good things already happening in the city and, and with this administration. And I think in particular, um, the the focus on social equity would be one of them that 
aligned with um, where my interests were, as well as um, sustainability. Both of those things play into uh, the, the built environment and the places that we inhabit. I think the thing that I brought in am continuing to pursue is really design and ur- urban design and quality of the buildings and the spaces between the buildings that, um, that we inhabit. Whether we're enjoying them, you know, on a Saturday afternoon or walking down them or riding our bikes through them, but also, you know, how the buildings front into those spaces. And I think there's been a couple occasions where I have asked, you know, staff, I have asked applicants to to design and develop as though you care, as though your family's going to live in this place or you're going to spend time in the space between the buildings that you're building and and that is, I just think there are so many uh, subliminal cues that happen in our visual experience of the city that make us feel comfortable or intrigued or happy or um, sometimes, you know, sad, scary, uh, or fearful. And so to really focus on those design elements that bring about joy and comfort and intrigue is what I am really focused on. And I'm, I also believe very strongly that those, you know, that sustainability, social equity, and design are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are strongest when they are thought through together. And so that's really what I have been, came in on, and I continue on that march. So I, I think you hit on something uh, there that maybe we can expand on in a slightly different way, that it, the intersections of, of work, right? So you talked about equity and design and sustainability. Um, can you talk a little bit about that sustainability piece a little bit more? So as, as you both know, the Spur Campus has a focus on food, water, health, and then sustainability writ broad. So can you talk a little bit more, um, Laura and then Grace, about the sustainability aspects of your job? You know, how does it connect? Well, I'll just I'll just start out with an example um, that I think is very specific to food. Um, in 2019, we approved with the far northeast communities, which is um, Montbello, Green Valley Ranch, uh, and Gateway areas, a uh, neighborhood plan. Right. So going back to working with the community to define their plan, they are they have been very focused on the fact that they've got food deserts throughout that area. Um, that they have just, which means no access to healthy food options. They've got lots of access to fast food because they've got lots of commercial corridors and 7-Eleven, you know, mm-hmm. convenience stores. Um, and so we were clear, we worked with them um, it, so that the plan reflects that desire. And so, you know, working with the council um, woman as well as the RNOs now, development is starting to come in. And to deliver on grocery stores, um, there's a Costco now coming in. And so that's, you know, just being able to focus and say, what, how do we begin to bring food into an area of ta- healthy food options, right? Not just food, but healthy food options into a, an area of town that has not um, experienced that for, you know, I would say the better part of 40, 60 years. Um, So that would be one example. I think, you know, sustainability is so broad, right? So it's everything from the how you place your footprint um, of your building on a parcel uh, to how dense you go, right? Which density typically is a more sustainable way to go because you're using less land 
to house more people. And so your infrastructure costs are less, not only are your infrastructure costs less expensive, but you're also just using less land to for the same function that you would otherwise spread across the prairie in a single family housing project. It's it's really broad breath. So how do, you know, other examples might be um, ensuring that we have great sidewalks, ensuring we have transportation network systems, so bike lanes. So that's partnering with Department of Transportation. And then moving down through the line when we get to building code, when we start really partnering with Grace's department on energy efficiency, we, you know, to Grace's point, we are the implementers of the building code, which stipulates, you know, the level of energy efficiency a building must have. Uh, we're interfacing with the, with the um, builders often uh, who are, again, not always going to reach for that um, to do the right thing. They're going to, they're watching their margin uh, as because they're in business. Um, but, you know, with Grace's help, we are navigating where do we go next? So the next building code, how do we make sure that that's got the right level of energy efficiency so that at the end of the day in 2027 or 2030, when, our, when we have metrics out there that we're trying to achieve, that we hit those metrics. Um, and, and Grace is right. It's not easy. And sometimes we're the ones that tell her no. Um, and she keeps coming back. <laughs> um, She's going to get to yes with you eventually is what I heard yeah, her sure say. Right? Yeah. Sure has. <laughs> I think we, we want to get to the same place. We just yes. are, getting, are going at different speeds. Laura's department um, understands the needs and concerns of the people that they serve. Our office needs to understand them as well if we want to get anywhere. And, and so that's fair. And um, so I'll, I'll piggyback on what Laura was saying. Well, first off, I think the, that last point about us coming to the table with funding for staff has put us in a tremendously uh, advantageous position that we didn't have before. Can you imagine before um, before the Climate Protection Fund, again, supported by the Denver voters, we might go to her office and say, you really need more staff people, or I need you to have more staff people. And she could say, yes, I agree, that would be great. And I don't have the money to do that. And now we're coming to the table saying, I need you to have these staff. And here we're willing to fund these for the next five years, is this something that you can do? So it, it makes it much easier to be a partnership when you have something to, to add to the table, which is great. But like Laura, I'll then, um, I'll use an example to, uh, back to your question about, you know, food, health, and water. And I'll use water as an example. So Denver is one of multiple agencies, uh, regional agencies that recently collaborated on a one water plan. So this is very timely. I know that this is running later um, in the fall, but water is an issue in 2021, regardless of when this episode airs. And um, I think that it's very important and timely that the city and county of Denver, Denver Water, but um, multiple, I think there were six local agencies in the region that came together and collaborated for a year and a half to address freshwater sources, stormwater management, and how all of our water systems work together so that we can proactively plan for the water-constrained future that we have already entered. And um, what? so then the question is, well, what's the role for CASER? Because we actually don't have a water expert on staff. Um, and as Laura has said, and as I've said, we're not an implementing agency, so we don't determine water policies for Denver Water. But as the agency now charged with managing sustainability and climate action policies for the city, we are that facilitator. We are the, the entity who can bring those different groups together and help them continue to work on coming to consensus on those issues 
monitor that plan, make progress on that plan, and report out on it to all the different communities who we serve. That's great. I'll note that the the One Water Plan, we are very much looking forward to to what the next steps are once that plan is in place. And, and it's amazing, again, to that, that point about Denver being a really collaborative place, that you have all of these entities that are coming together to say, how can we do better together? than we are separately. And and we're really excited to be able to showcase some one water principles at Spur as well. Our hydro building, which is focused on water, will be, I, th- I think, the first commercial application of gray water toilet flushing. So that's water from sinks that that will be used to flush our toilets. And then we're, we're looking at green roofs and what green roofs do when it comes to stormwater. So you guys have touched on this already, but maybe you can expand on it a little bit. How do you work? You, you've already noted how you work together. And you've both noted also that you have to work with other agencies. Are, is there anything you're particularly proud of in that collaborative space you want to highlight? I don't know if it's um, anything of record, but I, I do. I think what just talking about how do you collaborate? I think it is right. Grace and I are at the at the heads of these organizations, and then we have staff that are working together. And that collaboration has to work up and down that chain. Right. You have to think about it like you think about your relationships in your life. There's so much care that has to go into that collaboration. And I think we do that well. Right. And I there are times when my, you know, we might not agree. And then I have to go to Grace and I'm like, hey, we're not on the same page. And, you know, we have a we have a good conversation about it. And some some things we resolve, some things we don't. We just kind of keep working because I say no. And she's like, you'll say yes eventually. And then we come back and talk about it later. But but I do, right, like, I don't want to underscore, like, the amount of effort it takes to partner and to collaborate um, to move the ball forward together. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll add that, um, especially in government, but probably in other types of organizations, too, you often hear about the need to break down silos. And I think what what the process that Laura just described is exactly how that happens, is that, you know, that the heads of agencies talk, and we know that our staff are talking, and it's all circular, right? We're all talking together. That has been critically important. And I would say one thing that we don't do, which is good, is we we don't do complaining, right? We don't, there's no, we don't allow for, um, you know, that kind of chatter behind the back. Like, why isn't planning department doing this? Why isn't doing that? Or, or them saying, well, Cash is always telling us to do this. We don't do that because we have these open lines of communication. Mm-hmm. And so we can say, listen, you're doing X, Y, Z, and we, let's talk about that. We need to do this differently. and need to do this better. Or like, here's a different idea. We can have those conversations. So I think that you know, in being here for a year and a half, that's that. And during the pandemic, when mm-hmm. there's a lot of other things going on, I think that's something to be proud of. So, um, both of you, as you are in these leadership roles, I'd love to chat a little bit about how you got to where you are. As you know, we we want the Spur Campus to be a place where where young people, in particular, can discover careers they haven't been thinking about. So, maybe you can g- give us a, a brief rundown, Grace, of how you got to where you are. It's interesting. Every job that I've ever had, I didn't know existed when I was in high school or even in college. So when I uh, graduated college, my uh, and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, my dad gave me advice. He told me, think about three things. Um, one, what was I good at? Two, what did I enjoy doing? And then three, what was important to me? And um, I have continued to use that throughout my career. The answers I had at that time were, um, oh, I was good. I was good at writing. I really like writing. I like um, essays and papers and those things never bothered me. Uh, Two, what I enjoy, I enjoyed coaching, like mentoring people who were younger than me to do the things that I do. So I I really like coaching others. And what was important to me at the time, and this was 
I mean, it's still important, but at the time was I wanted to save the world by fixing public education. That was my thing. And uh, I was in Ohio and I moved to Chicago because that was the hotbed of school reform at the time. And um, I got my first job and I'm going to tell this story because I love the story. I got my first job by um, reading every day. I would read about the school reform movement in Chicago and I would go to the public library and I would read uh, the new, two newspapers of town. I would read the educational publications. And every time I saw somebody quoted, I would call them. And I had to look up the number in the phone book. Because there wasn't <laughs> And I would call them and I'd say, hi, I'm new in town. And I read about you. And I'm really interested in your job. Could I interview you to learn more about what you do? And everybody said yes, because like I am doing right now, everybody loves to talk about themselves. And so I had, I had scores of informational interviews with people and every person I interviewed said, you know what, you need to call so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so and tell them I told you to call them. And so I did and I would follow up. And so I had many, many more. And within six months, one of the people who I had interviewed with called me and said, I have a job. Would you like this job? And that was it. That's how I got my first job. And I was working for a nonprofit uh, school reform organization, and it was a it was a coalition group. We were an umbrella organization um, that had members from thirty different groups. When I went walked into the, my first group meeting, I knew almost everyone in the room because I'd interviewed with all of them. And um, and really, every job I've had since then, I have not interviewed for in a traditional way, like where you actually apply until I got this job that I have right now, and that was. 25 something years ago, at least five jobs ago. And so I think that what I have done in my career is I have just kept my, um, my, I've always kept myself open to new opportunities. And I think the most important thing to me that has always been a thread is I need to be part of something that is bigger than myself. And I enjoy working for cities because we can do things at scale. So um, you, a lot of the work that we do in the climate office you can do that in lots of different types of organizations, but here I can do things at a scale that impact the entire city. And um, that is really exciting and uh, something I always look forward to every day when I get up. Wonderful. I love that. I, I think the, the stories that show how surprise is so much a part of people's journeys. I am surprised that I am where I am is a thing that, that a lot of people end up saying. And, you know, starting out with education reform and now you're in sustainability and um, obviously, your your the 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 thread there is wanting to make positive impact and positive change. Definitely. But let's go to Laura and tell us how you got where you are. I come from a medical family, all physicians or nurses; those are my choices. Um, and so, of course, I was pre med uh, for the first year and uh, did okay. Uh, and um, had an aunt who was kind of an alternative gal who just took me aside and just said, "Where you know, what is it that you gets, what gets you so excited? And I said, she said, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do for your career? I was like, oh, I, I would like, it took me a second because I knew, right? I never thought about it, but I knew exactly. I wanted to be an archaeologist in Latin America, Central America, right? My father's from Mexico. I'd grown up you know, spending time in, in Mexico with my family. Uh, he was a professor in, throughout Latin America. So I went, and, you know, we went and traveled a lot. So I just had a very great familiarity, was bilingual um, and had seen, a you know, a great handful of sites throughout Latin America. Um, and so like literally at, that was freshman, uh, summer of freshman year, went back in the fall, changed my major um, 
found a professor who worked in Peru, you know, and I got an unpaid internship to clean Yama bones, um, you know, in the uh, basement of one of the old buildings at CU, uh, and then found my way into a, um, a study abroad for a semester um, in Honduras, working as an archaeologist um, with some professors out of uh, out of Ohio, but um, and just you know, like actually did it. Like I actually was an archaeologist, just clearing you know late classic Maya you know foundations and discovering you know, kilns and burial sites and middens and everything that you would want it to be in shards. And uh, and then senior year, I had to write a thesis on it and didn't really have much, like we found things and it looked like this. And then it went into a monologue that, you know, was, co- you know, collated with all the other studies and went into the library in Tegucigalpa in Honduras and nobody read it, nobody did anything. But I kept doing archaeology, right? So it was great. So I would spend six months uh, in the dry season in Honduras with the same group. And then I'd come back and live out of my car or in a tent or in a hotel, um, going to different digs around the United States. That's what you do. But eventually, I kept thinking, like, I'm in these communities, but I'm I'm not connected at all. The best I can do is write a report, and it goes into a library that nobody reads. Uh, and, and a friend of mine um, had uh, from college had gave me an article on um, a Le Cubusier project in India where he had built social housing, but he had not thought about the culture of the people. And so he built the, the bathroom right next to the kitchen. And so here are 225 units of social housing uh, that get built and not a person will move into them because he did not, because the architect missed the whole point about culture. That article made me realize the connection between, you know, archaeology, anthropology, and place, and affecting, impacting, and affecting people in your community. So I went back to school and um, studied for, I actually have a double master's in Latin American studies and urban planning, um, and then really just went from private sector, you know, kind of worked for a design firm for three years. It was great. Learned a lot. Um, Similarly to Grace, where as I started thinking about wanting to be more connected to my community, anytime we had a a client or someone who was in a charrette that was connected to the city of Denver, I followed up and said, hey, can I just, can I grab you a cup of coffee? Can we go talk? And eventually uh, made my way to uh, a conversation, a cup of coffee with the then planning director, Jennifer Moulton. Once we did connect, she, same thing. She's like, I got a job for you. Then I moved into the public sector and that was a fantastic experience. I learned a lot. And I would say, you know, the thing that my aunt taught me in one question was that um, fall is to follow your passion. And it sounds so cheesy, but it is 100%, I believe it is 100% um, the the option because it's a long road you know i'm in my 50s i'm not done um and i'm loving getting up every day and i love what i do it's hard um as are you know everybody's jobs um but i wouldn't trade it for a second and i think it's okay to change and evolve right i think there's this pressure that you have to make it a, a one you know a time and point decision that that you are going to follow for the rest of your life and in fact No, like, I mean, there is a small population of people who probably actually do that. 
And everybody else is in this evolutionary path that is not linear. Yeah. And I think um, you, you, you both said some version of following your passion. And I think that that can sound kind of intimidating to someone who may, to your point, Grace, not be sure what that passion is. But following your curiosity is a slightly easier thing to do if you know you're interested in a number of things you can follow those those things and where does your next sort of moment of curiosity take you next speaking of loving your work you both said that you it gets you out of bed every day and that it's hard tell me a little bit about what what's a day in the life um if there is a typical day in in this leadership position which i will say is um different than other you know most other positions i've had Um, I am extremely structured. So literally every 30 minutes, I am moving from one topic to another from 7.30 in the morning. uh, And and last night it was till 7.30 at night. Um, uh, I make sure I carve out time to go work out uh, a couple times a week because that's my sanity and that kind of keeps me grounded. Um, So that that is a challenge and making decisions in this executive position, I, the buck stops with you. Making decisions again and again and again actually is, um, sometimes it's easy, but it's just like, you're just aware that you are the decider to quote a president. Um, and that's okay, right? Like I, 10 years ago, probably was not, I probably wasn't ready for that. Um, but, but I'm just cognizant of that, that people are coming to me as the executive director um, asking for a decision and I have to weigh and balance and make a decision. And I would say mine is similar. It's a little bit different in a couple of ways. And one, to be clear, like my office is a lot smaller than Laura's department. So the, the range of issues that she would have to deal with on a regular basis and those decisions, you know, every 30 minutes is, um, a significantly greater scale than what I have. But I too, in a leadership position, um, am faced with making a lot of decisions and helping helping the team think through the different options for decisions. Um, I'm rarely in a position of um, like saying, okay, well, this is how it's going to be. It's more like we hear it all out, we troubleshoot, and we all come to consensus on what's the right way. Um, but I have to be part of those discussions. It's been an, uh, an interesting evolution though since starting here last year. As I mentioned earlier, when I started, we, I was one of 11 people and I was very much still in a project management role because there simply weren't enough people to do all the work. Now that we have rapidly grown so much, I am doing much less in the project management space, in fact, hardly at all, and am much more in a position of reviewing documents and um, helping the team make decisions and, uh, you know, thinking about what comes next. Can you tell me a little bit about your teams? Are there, um, you know, as as we're thinking about introducing young people to new careers, what are some of the roles that are on your teams that maybe people would be surprised to hear about? I have one person who has um, an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree in chemical engineering. We, and, um, you know, that, that isn't necessarily needed for the type of policy work that we do, but um, we have a lot of scientists. We have a lot of scientists and engineers, and it helps them to speak to the people who are impacted by the policies that they are recommending. But... We also have people um, who don't have those kind of scientific degrees because we also have people who just need to work with people, right? They need to be out there in communities. They need to be good communicators. They need to be good collaborators. They got to be able to sit at a picnic table in a park and meet with average folks and just talk about climate and talk about how this impacts their community. 
And um, that's a completely different skill set. Not everybody has that. And so we, I would say we've got a really broad range of interests and abilities and skills and degrees in our office. Yeah. So same here. It's really ranges from, you know, records folks and cashiers all the way to your double majors, um, whether it's engineering or architecture or urban planning. Um, it is, you know, I think in terms of, um, it's such a broad, again, going from planning all the way to going out and inspecting, right? So tradesmen who have experience or have had their own companies uh, in a variety of, of different disciplines, uh, they are, um, you know, equally important, right? It, it, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to get to leadership positions or to matter, right? Um, you know, education in general and liberal arts degrees are, are great. Um, and, and, you know, I would always recommend them. Um, but, but that's not always, um, that's not a requirement for my department, uh, because we're often working with the construction. I mean, we we do work every day with the construction industry. Um, and, and not, you know, some do, some have degrees, some have undergraduate degrees and some don't. Um, and we're really focused on the trades, uh, in that, in that area. Um, but I would say, right, like, besides uh, a degree, right? Thinking about like critical judgment, critical thinking, just good basic judgment, um, communication skills. How do you work with others? How can you hear others? Those are, in my mind, some of the more important skill sets that don't really have anything to do with um, an, a higher education. And Although I would always promote higher education. Yeah. No, no worries. If we, my boys are listening. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will make um I will add one thing though that that uh, we want people to understand that you don't need to have a particular degree or in some cases any degree. Right. Depending on what you're what you're bringing to the table from your own lived experience and what we're looking for in that particular job. Yeah, absolutely. That diversity of lived experience is very important. Yeah, and, and urban planning is a graduate degree only. Uh, there's a few undergraduate programs that are urban studies. So you have to get through undergraduate and then into graduate school. And um, that, uh, as, a res- as a result, um, we have a very high uh, white population. Uh, and it used to be white and male. It's now more, much more female. Um, but we still struggle to reach to our, you know, surrounding colleges um, who are Latino serving and, you know, bringing those, those young kids through, through their undergraduate and into graduate programs. Um, and, and I personally, my pitch for urban planning is that this is all about impacting your community, um, and using policy and government to help, to help do that or working with, you know, ultimately working with developers to deliver that for your community. So it's a great way to, to give back uh, which is certainly a part of our community, um, uh, being raised as a Latina. But um, you know, it, you have to know it. You have to go and dig it, dig out, and find it to to know that it, it's there. We only have a couple minutes left, so I want to be sure that people um, know how to find you and know how to learn more about each of your offices. So um, we will link to your social media in um, the show notes. But is there any particular way you'd like people to be able to find you? Certainly our office, Office of Climate Action, Sustainability and Resiliency, we're on all your favorite social networks. And my understanding is that our handle is at Denver Casser, which is C-A-S-R. Thank you. And similarly on Twitter, we're at 
Denver CPD on, uh, and then for Instagram, we, um, have a, uh, we're at Denver underscore landmark, which is our historic preservation group, uh, which usually has great photos of old buildings and cool, cool history facts about Denver. So that's a great one to check out as well. We will, like I said, we'll link to those so people can, can find, uh, more information about each of you and the work that you do. Um, and we're going to wrap up with our spur of the moment question. So um, we'll start with you, Grace. Question for you is, do you have a favorite article of clothing you've had for a long time? That's a really good question. I actually am the kind of person who keeps clothes for a really, really long time. It's a nice sustainability measure. There you and go. I also greatly <laughs> dislike shopping. Um, yes, I actually have this one extremely loud print uh, blazer um, that might actually predate my children and the oldest is 14. And, um, it's, so if anybody ever sees me at a spring function, I might wear that blazer. I love it. And I have a matching purse, which also is only used with that jacket. Amazing. Wow. That is a great sustainability note, by the way. Yes. <laughs> so, um, Laura, I, the question I had for you, I think you have sort of answered maybe, but maybe not. So if you were not going to be in the job that you have now, what would you have done? I, um, I would be a food historian. I just, and it ties in, right, with anthropology and archaeology, but, but in particular, Mexican food, the history of Mexican food, because you've got the indigenous uh, native foods, plus you've got uh, foods from Asia coming through, right, a crossing, and then landing on the west side, crossing land to get to the east side of Mexico, Veracruz, to get back to Spain. Um, and so then, and then you've got Spanish food, European food coming back. And I mean, I would start there, but I think I could spend the rest of my career focused on just food history in Mexico. Yeah, I think um, that's genius because that means you get to go eat it right. and talk to people about right. it. That's fabulous. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being with us today for the Spur of the Moment podcast. We have enjoyed talking with you and having this wide ranging conversation about your professional journeys. And I know there are so many nuggets of advice that you both have given to uh, our listeners, particularly our young listeners. So thank you so much for your thoughtful guidance for them. Thanks. We enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Peach Islander Productions and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned during today's episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next Spur of the Moment episode. Until then, be well.